Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. (sighs) The eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Welcome everyone. Today we have the amazing Wendy Brockett and she is here today to talk about her experiences with binge eating disorder. I'm just so grateful to have you here on the show today. Wendy, thank you for taking the time. Cool, no worries. So I want to start by giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your journey, a little bit of an an overview, if you will. Would you be comfortable with that? Yeah, no worries. So my eating disorder started at seven. We had a lot of food restrictions in the house because of generational eating disorders. Every generation going back on one side of the family had a disorder of some variety. They didn't have names. They were just disorders. So started at seven, um, didn't know what it was called, but that was when I would overeat at children's parties because there was food that we weren't allowed in the house. But then I also, while I was binging on that, there would be times where I would then go and purge because I didn't understand the balance that you could have both things at the same time. And then in my teenage years, I learned that it had a name and it had a purpose. Still was had a lot of food restrictions in the house, so still really struggled to eat normally or understand what normal eating was. And when around new foods, I freaked out and then still didn't understand how to eat and that still continued to this day and even new foods now I if I have something to eat say I had something to eat on Saturday night out for dinner and now that's all I can think about so yeah that's a really brief snapshot of my eating journey and so both sides of your family had had eating disorders right through generations they never put names to them. My grandmother was, her description was that she was afraid to put on weight because it would hurt her arthritis. So she maintained a very, very unhealthy low weight, basically a child's weight is the best way I can put that without putting it into numbers because of fear of hurting her bones. My mother, my sister, aunts, uncles, literally everyone I know growing up, most of the men didn't, If they did have anything, they didn't say anything or it wasn't noticed. 
that everyone else it was yeah noticed it's a real testament to the power of genetics isn't it it really is and those people that say that genetics don't have any involvement i think it's an environmental and it's a genetic thing and the two combined can be a really big recipe for disaster Absolutely. It's like I always say, the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. And that's why it's so important that we have studies like the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative that's happening at the moment. So for those of you who don't know, it's the biggest global study into the genetics behind eating disorders. And if we can understand more about the genetics behind it all, then we can work on more tailored treatments and more prevention. And it is such a strong, strong, strong thing where, where eating disorders are concerned. So if you were to describe to someone what it's like to live with binge eating disorder, you know, what it's like physically, what it's like mentally, spiritually, you know, for you in your head, because I think sometimes for people who who haven't had eating disorders before, it's really hard for them to understand what goes on, you know, why you're still thinking about that meal that you had in the weekend and why, you know, you struggle with these particular things. So would you be able to give us a bit of an insight into what, I mean, we know everyone's experience is unique, but what what your experience of having binge eating disorder feels like? So basically it revolves around being told growing up that you weren't allowed food. You know, there was certain foods that you just we didn't eat that. That would be the saying that was said in our family, we don't eat that, or that is not food that our house has. And then as soon as you hear that, then you start obsessing about that. And so growing up, it was food like chocolate. We don't eat chocolate. My sister still can't eat chocolate. Whereas for me, that is something that I binge on because I had 30 years of being told we don't eat that for me it did the full 180 and now that's one of my main binge foods because I can't disassociate the we don't versus I can have this in moderation and be okay with it. There's no moderation. It's it's either one extreme or the other. So there's either not having the food that I wasn't allowed growing up or there is I binge on it and overthink about it and go and go to the supermarket on a daily basis sometimes, especially during COVID, just because I needed to get out and I needed to see people and I needed to get foods because I was thinking about food all the time. I had nothing else other than work. And so COVID's really had an impact on you? COVID was really interesting. Yeah, having to do everything from home, so working from home, exercising from home, schooling my child from home, I guess. And then it was the food part was just, I mean, I had access to my pantry. I don't have that at work. I take a select amount of food to work. I could do whatever I wanted with food during COVID. And that's really scary. And that was really dangerous. I went from extreme binging in the beginning because I was like, well, I don't know how long it's going to last. It could be a month. It could be two. It could be whatever. Or I would go the other extreme where I just would switch off about food and By that, I mean I would go and work extra hours on my computer because my computer was there and work was always there and I could always do more or I could do more gym. Trying to switch off is freaking nearly impossible, but as long as I didn't go near the kitchen, it was a little bit easier. But yeah, supermarket every day during COVID and I didn't care how long I had to wait and queue. I was going to go. Yeah, it's very much that. (laughs) 
overwhelming sense and there's no way that anyone can stop you. And I think it doesn't really matter what type of eating disorder you have, whether it is restrictive or whether it is binging, that overwhelming sense of having to do it and feeling like you don't have any choice in that moment. It's so, so intense and overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, when you're not used to having access to like your pantry because you're at work and then all of a sudden it's right there. As soon as I was told I could go and work from the office, I was like literally the next day I was in there. Whereas others took weeks to go back, I knew I needed to go back as soon as I could. It's that structure and that routine, isn't it? It really, really helps to keep that eating disorder at bay. Yeah. And it's also you take a set amount of food. You know, while we have a sushi vendor that walks through the office once a day, where my work is located, there aren't any other food vendors around, at least for a 10, 15 minute walk. So what I take is what I've got, unless I buy sushi. I believe there's a vending machine in the building. I've never looked for it, never tried, and have done that intentionally. But yeah, it's a set amount. So I know that that day I can eat during business hours, a normal meal. Yeah, absolutely. Now you talked about exercise. You touched on that before. Has that been something that you've struggled with? You've had a difficult relationship with? Yeah. So originally I used to play sports seven nights a week because I was an overachiever and we were taught to be busy. So sitting down is something that I was, that was discouraged in our family. You weren't to sit down. People that sat down were lazy yeah, therefore you were involved in everything. So there was brownies, guides, ear cadets, sport, seven nights a week because I had to do every sport I possibly could, even if I was really horrible at it. And then the gym kind of came in and out, especially during the off-season for winter sport. And then the gym became something recently I moved back to in a healthy way. But I'm also really vigilant and hyper aware that there are moments when I use it in a non-healthy way and then I pull back and then I reach out to my PT and say to her, I've just gone to the gym. I've just done this session. This is not right for me. I need to see you for my next one before I go back in. That's fantastic that you're really taking that ownership and that you've you know communicated to her and you've got someone. I think having you know a tribe around you in recovery is so so important. To have someone like that that you can go look, I've overdone it. I now need you know to do it in a controlled way is is really really great. And I think it is also really interesting how you know comments that are made in childhood or ideas that we're sort of indoctrinated with yeah. can really really. Um, carry right on through our lives because we have this idea that it is wrong to to not be doing all of these things or to sit still or to not have those foods in the house and and I think sometimes maybe parents don't realize that flippant comments can really really be taken to the extreme with someone who is is predisposed to developing an eating disorder and the thing is it doesn't stop either you know I may not be a child and I may not be living at home anymore but the comments don't stop So I still get comments from family members. When we're out for dinner on Saturday night, people were commenting on what I was eating. Even my own child turned around because I normally eat vegetarian, but the restaurant had no vegetarian options. And the alternatives that were there sounded horrible. So he was like, so you're not vegetarian now because you're eating meat. And I was like, out of the options I have, I'm making the best choice for me. This is a me decision and it doesn't stop me. It just means that one meal that I'm eating 
isn't the same as normal. It's really interesting, isn't it? I just don't think people understand how commenting on other people's food options, commenting on other people's bodies can be so incredibly problematic. I mean, who what gives anyone the right to comment on someone's food decisions or their body? It is it is up to them to make those decisions. Have you, you know, had conversations with your family about your eating disorder and what is helpful and what is not? Yeah. So I food is a subject that I've made very clear with 99% of people that I don't talk about because it isn't helpful. And they know that. It doesn't stop them. Friends it does. Friends are really respectful. When I get new friends, I have to go through the talk of I understand that you might like doing, you know, diets and things like that. But for me, I can't hear that. So can you confide in other friends about that? But for me, that's really triggering. Yeah, with family, as much as, you know, we've got this genetic link of an end disorder going back many generations, my family still have a myth about mental health and a disbelief in a lot of mental health, even though that 90% of them suffer from it. So they think it's overreacting to request them not to talk about food. They don't understand the impact. Wow. You know, that really speaks to just how misunderstood eating disorders are and unfortunately our culture, which is very diet saturated and and image obsessed. And But I really, you know, I think it's fantastic that you have had those conversations and wonderful that you're doing it with your friends as well and really setting those boundaries because it's so, so important. If you think back, you know, you think about your journey, what is the most challenging part of it for you? If you could pick one part, what do you feel is the most challenging? Just the amount of time that I've spent on food. <sighs> I've never been able to just go and eat. Ever since my, even my earliest memories, I've never been able to just go and eat and freely eat, you know, go and have a meal and not have to think about every single aspect or go to a restaurant unplanned. I couldn't do that. And even on Saturday night, we were in the middle of absolute nowhere. And I knew there was going to be no option. So I didn't even bother checking the menu because I knew that whatever I was going to eat that night was going to be something that I didn't like, I wouldn't like. And the options, I would have been frowned upon for asking for any changes um, because of where we were. It just wasn't appropriate. I wish I could get back the time I spent on it. But being mindful of it is a way that I'm going to prevent it from taking any more time and so that's the flip side is that even though it's the hardest thing I've faced and the biggest challenge is how much time I've spent on it it also gives me a reason to fight to get time back I love that I love that you've flipped that around and and I think that people don't understand that you know it's such a simple thing for most people they don't give it any thought they're hungry they eat and that's the end of it and for those of us who've suffered with eating disorders it's so so vastly different it's so all-consuming and such as what seemingly should be such a simple decision you know consumes us for days and sometimes months afterwards making that decision and so I really love the fact that you've flipped it around and are focusing on on getting that time back. That's so, so important. Have there been moments in your journey where you've felt hopeless? In those moments, what's helped you to keep that hope alive? Constantly. There is always that in the back of my mind, no matter what. There have been a few periods where I've gone into remission, as I call it, where it hasn't been as bad. 
And usually my life has been really settled in those times. And, you know, I have been able to, I guess, relax a little. But because it's just everything I do, it's a hard one. Yeah, it infiltrates every single part of your life. I know that feeling. (laughs) What helps you to keep that hope alive? What things do you have in your life that and in your world that keep you going? Um, I think the fact that I am really aware of it now more than ever. I have a 13-year-old and I think back to when I was his age and how I had a name for my eating disorder at his age. I am really mindful of that and I know the stats on boys with food problems and I'm very aware of what he's exposed to with me and my eating. And so that is probably my biggest motivator. But it's also because I've realized that I need to do it. And so, you know, I sought out support again when it got really bad. And that was the first step. And then I pushed the support away and then was up and down about whether I wanted support because half of you is wanting it, but the other half isn't. But everything I've always done has been for my child. and if I can get this on track, he shouldn't be the reason, but it's a bloody good reason to have. It's an amazing reason to have. And I can completely relate with that eating disorder, self, healthy self tussle that goes on in terms of, you know, there were many times in my journey where I really did want that help. My healthy self, Millie really wanted that help, but you know, the eating disorder self was so strong and prevented me from reaching out or engaging with those services. So it's a very real internal struggle that goes on. Yeah. In terms of when we look at eating disorders, we know that the media really chooses to portray anorexia as sort of the main type of eating disorder. And that can be really, really damaging because what we know is that binge eating disorder is a huge issue. Do you feel, you know, that you've faced a lot of sort of judgment or or stigma around having, say, binge eating disorder rather than another type of eating disorder? And how has that affected you? I think for me, I mean, when I was a teenager, it didn't have a name. No, nothing had names. Like my mental health didn't have a name. So I was so used to it being just a thing that only I had and only I knew about that it was something that was under the radar. And, you know, I still feel that it is because if I was to think about my friends and them knowing about how bad my eating disorder is, I'd say 99.99% wouldn't realize how intensive it is. They know that I struggle and they know that I seek treatment, but they don't see what, say, my son does. And, you know, that's the reality of it. It's the only people in your household actually see the full extent of it. Yeah, it's something that's a detriment to it is the ability to hide it. And being a single parent, I've got even more chance to hide it, although it's not something I should be happy about but it is the eating disorder loves that side of things because it's hidden absolutely eating disorders thrive on that that secrecy and that isolation they absolutely love it and they use it to their advantage yeah definitely what influence if any has social media had on on your development of your eating disorder and your recovery as well so i have been I was really mindful when I started on social media a gazillion years ago about what content I allowed myself to view. I put my parent eyes on, and so would I want my child to see this at any point in his life? 
and that filtered my content. That's so, great. That's a wonderful uh, um, idea. There are times that, you know, I, when I'm feeling low that I might want to go and, you know, look at hashtags or look at something. But for me, I keep reminding myself um, and I don't follow people that um, are unhealthy. I If I see someone post something that challenges something that I believe in or that challenges one of the negative or positive thoughts, it, you know, regardless what it is, I'll go and unfollow. So even, you know, people that I've met in hospital, I won't follow them because I disassociate with everyone that I've met along the journey because that's where they stay. They had a part, they had time then, but social media has no place for that. Not for me. I can't allow it. I think that's fantastic and and I completely agree with your philosophy on that. Has social media been helpful in any way for for you in terms of of recovery? Not so much. Um, I think I took it to a bad level at one point because of the eating disorder. Um, There was a lot of weight gain and that's kind of something that's not really discussed. And so when I did start to lose weight, in a healthy way and that was not dieting and that was not doing a shake or anything like that. That was literally learning to exercise in a healthy way. And I did that. It opened up a new can of worms. While yes, I was getting, you know, this really positive feedback, you know, congratulations. It was also people were commenting on my appearance. So the only way I found social media helpful has been by following certain pages. And that is, you know, that's Jen, that's Voice of Hope. Like your post last night, I saw it and I was like, you didn't know that I needed to see that. You didn't know what I had on today, but that I needed for today without you knowing. And so that is why I choose to filter and post what I post because I'm aware of the impact that that could have. And I don't want someone who is struggling in my position to see my content and to think that going to harm them. That's the parent brain again. Absolutely. I'm so pleased. Uh, my post last night resonated with you. So, so pleased. Um, have you got any sort of lasting physical implications from having had an eating disorder for, for such a long time? Yeah, I have many. And the one that I never talk about and most ashamed about because alongside the binge eating there has also been the bulimia the two have crossed over and because of that I lost my teeth at 30 and I had to get false teeth that was a direct result of over 20 years of abusing my body and that was not just the food I was eating not just what I was drinking as well you know I was drinking non-sugar free versions of drinks then add the vomiting to that yeah at 30 I lost my teeth and my dentist tried everything for the years leading up to save my teeth but there's nothing they can do when you're still doing the act and yeah and that's something not many people know because I'm 36 I shouldn't have that and I'll have that for the rest of my life wow well thank you so much for sharing that and giving people an idea of of just how intense the the ramifications can be on, on the physical body from these eating disorder behaviors. And I can only imagine how traumatic that would have been. And I, I think also it, it's a testament to the fact that it doesn't matter what 
what we're told could happen to our bodies. I remember being, you know, told that I would never have children or I'd be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 30 because my bones will degenerate. That power of that eating disorder overrides all of that, doesn't it? It just doesn't matter what we're faced with. We continue to engage in those behaviours. And even the dentist, you know, telling me over and over, you need to stop what you're doing because you're going to harm yourself. And I was like, well, I'm bulletproof. The other time that it was, was when I was pregnant. And that, yeah, I had a specialist team involved because you add eating disorder with pregnancy and it's just a big recipe for disaster. And I lost weight in my pregnancy and I had a very small child at birth and that was due to my body and my eating and so you know that was another reason why I've used my child as a focal point for my recovery because I've impacted his life in a negative way from day one that I in my mind I want to prove that things do get better. Absolutely and and so throughout your pregnancy your eating disorder was just as 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 rampant it was worse, to be honest. And then because I had hyperemesis, so physically I couldn't keep food down, I went privately to an OBGYN because I didn't feel comfortable with a midwife because I didn't think she would understand. And he would put me on meal supplements, give me injections so that I could try and keep food down. But even when I could keep food down or I could eat, there was the extremes of, my body won't let me keep food in because of the hyperemesis, but then I want to eat, so I want to binge. And then, and so I made it be a really hard decision after my son was born, he was a year old, and I made the decision that I would not do pregnancy again. This was clearly before I came out as gay, um, but I went and got, um, I had surgery, so I couldn't ever get pregnant again because I could not risk that to my body again because it was just you shouldn't be lighter at the end of your pregnancy than you were when you started. It's interesting, isn't it? Because people often ask me whether I think that pregnancy and actually growing you know, a, a child inside of you would have, have a positive impact on someone with an eating disorder because they would know that they have to eat to nourish that child. And I think it's so interesting to hear everybody's different experiences and, and for you that it actually did make it worse. Yeah, and you know, some people change their life you know, when they get pregnant, they get really, you know, healthy. But for me, it literally, it triggered me and it made me worse. And so knowing that and knowing how bad I was, I knew that that was something that I could never put my body through again. And that was a really easy decision to make. They didn't want to do the surgery. They told me I was too young, but we were able to put it under mental health grounds and I went privately. That was the big difference was being able to go privately and having that luxury, I guess, because there was no way I could risk harm. I couldn't do that to another child. I'd already hurt one. How old were you at that point? 25. Yeah, wow. It's a big decision. But when you know that that it's something that you can't go through, I think being able to have ownership over, over that decision is so, so important. And how did you, you know, after your pregnancy, after you'd given birth, what was the eating disorder like at that point? You know, your body was obviously quite different. You no longer had had a child inside of you. How did it manifest then? That was, I guess my situation was a little bit different to most people's because I went to the extreme of I can eat now. And so the binging just skyrocketed. 
it, yeah, I gained back any weight that was lost. But I also, because of how rough things were, I did end up in hospital, a psychiatric ward, and it was a mother's and baby's unit. But the fact about it in Christchurch is that the mother's and baby's unit is joint with the eating disorders unit. So you put someone in a unit who is struggling post-childbirth and then just so happens to be around people with eating disorders, it took an external therapist to get me out of there. But it took her four months to get me out of there because she could see how much it was impacting me and the people on the inside were not allowing that. That would have been, I can't even begin to imagine how traumatic that would have been for you. It was an experience. You know, that's where me saying that I have no friends from my past. And that's one of the reasons because, I mean, who I was back then is not who I am. And I don't define myself as that person. Yeah, those people, if I saw them, I'd say hello to them. But yeah, you're literally putting both parts of a mental illness in the same area it's never going to work out perfectly. And, you know, it's not to say that everyone that has children, you know, will have an eating disorder, but there are people like me that just so happen to have both. And yeah, it was very crazy time. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And this is why we need specialized eating disorder care and facilities that can provide that because it doesn't work being in a mental health facility with with others it just it just doesn't work we need that that specialized care now you touched briefly before on you know coming out as gay was that something that you think contributed to the development of your eating disorder in any way the fact that you know did you know from a young age that that was the case yeah so my earliest memory was the age of 5 but because there were so many rules and restrictions and we weren't a religious family there was there was religion in the family but it wasn't you know we weren't heavily religious it was just another one of the things that it wasn't suitable for me to be my true me I came out as bi in my teens because my aunt came out as gay and a gay minister of religion so I was like okay cool if I can come out as bi now and you know pretend you know at least see how this goes and that wasn't accepted, even in my own family. So I just, I pretended it didn't exist again. I even went into a marriage with someone who was a good friend of mine. My family said it was the right thing to do. I can't, it's kind of like an arranged marriage situation. It was, was that he was a friend of mine. It was giving my child a father that he would see. Yeah, I went into that knowing my sexuality. He knew my sexuality. But for some reason, he agreed to go along with it. And we did that for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that it was just another role and another condition of this is what we do. And saying that when I found my freedom and when I did leave and when I did come out, my eating changed and not necessarily in the best way because then I had my freedom to no one was watching me, but there was also a chance to eat things that I couldn't eat when I was in my previous life that I might have considered um, food that I liked, not just a household liked. When when you think about your body now, where, where are you 
at in terms of have you come to a place of of acceptance of it? Where do you where do you sit with it when you think about your body? So recently, I started getting, I guess, back on track is the way I describe it, and starting to really push forward with recovery and really making a conscious effort. That's taken a wee backward step due to something that happened. So having mirrors covered at the moment is something that I have to do. I'm really conscious in the gym. My trainer's aware of literally everything. I swear she's like a therapist more than a trainer. When I train with her, we look at the wall. We don't look at mirrors. And she'll tell me about my technique and tell me ways in my body that I can see and feel my technique without having to physically look. But I accept that this is just a tiny little backward step and it will pass and I've taken the right actions to make it pass. But this is, you know, one of those setbacks in life that we have and it was out of my control. And so now I choose to how I control it and that is engaging with a new PT that understands things that just by chance knew how to deal with things beyond my knowledge and yeah I don't look in mirrors at the moment and I am really mindful and I try not to go shopping the clothes because the thought of it scares the hell out of me but I also have friends that work in retail and if they see something come in then that they think suitable for me then they'll just grab it for me I don't even have to think about it so that I guess that's part of my support network is that I do have people out there that can just buy me clothes and then I pay them so that I don't have to go through that experience. Wendy, you're absolutely incredible. I mean, the things that you're putting in place to make sure that you're safeguarding yourself against, you know, going backwards further is fantastic. And you're right, you know, when you have little setbacks, when we always talk about recovery as a roller coaster, and and, and then you get back on track and 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 that's what you're doing. And I think I covered mirrors for many, many years, and it was really important for me to do that in order to be able to make progress in my recovery. And I think it's wonderful that you have support networks like your PT, like your friends who understand and who who are out there um, supporting you through that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. What are some of the tools and the strategies that have helped you most in recovery or, or that you use now to help you stay on track? You've talked about avoiding mirrors and you've talked about the routine and structure of work. Is there anything else that for someone who's going through binge eating disorder that you'd like to share that has helped you? I, there's an ideal that I work towards and it's still an ideal and I try really hard and I'm still working towards it, which is not, and it sounds so simple, but not buying the food. You know, it seems so simple to someone who doesn't experience it, but that for me is something that is one of my biggest goals is not buying the food because there is only certain foods that I will choose to partake in. And so that's part of my goals. I write a lot. I write, write and write and just more. And I also make sure that I'm talking not just with, my PT or my therapist, I talk with my friends, I choose to engage and it's, you have to make the choice. I also explore the internet in positive ways because one of the hardest things that I have to face and as a reality other than my teeth is the fact that because I did lose a large amount of weight, I will never feel comfortable in a mirror because I have excess skin. And so for me, that's, 
the mirror is always going to be a challenging place. But I remember in summer I wore a singlet and I didn't wear a cardigan and I went out and I went in public in a singlet. And we're not talking the gym or anything like that. We're talking like city centre. And I was like, I had to like pause. And I said to the person I was with, you don't understand how big this moment is. I can leave the house, not go to the gym and wear a singlet. And, you know, these parts of my body that I hate and that I don't like and that I, re- I literally do everything to avoid, I've got on display. And that was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned was because no one, I didn't hear any judgment. I didn't, you know, there could have been people judging me, but I couldn't hear it. Same with going to the swimming pool. I went to the pool last week because I knew I needed to relax and I knew that I was stressed. And, you know, I have different sizes and different shapes of togs because you never know what sort of day you're going to have. And so I found something that day that felt right for me and where I was at. And as soon as I got into the pool, everything disappeared and I felt comfortable. And I was like, you know, even no matter how crap on the inside you're feeling, you can still go and do these things and challenge yourself, even little daily things. And it makes a difference. And I left and I had a spa and it was incredible. And I sat down. So firstly, I sat down. I went to a pool and wore togs. I didn't do anything for an hour. To most people, these are like totally normal. But to me, that massive. And I came home and I was relaxed and it was a feeling that I'm not used to. And so I had to kind of try and work out what it was because I don't understand it. I am so proud of you and I can completely relate to that feeling of no one understanding how big you know, that moment is for you where you wear that particular garment of clothing or you just be, you actually sit down or you go to the spa or you put on those pair of togs. And those are those huge moments where you know you are strengthening your healthy self. Makes me so happy to hear that you are having those moments because those are the moments that you need to hold on to when you're feeling, you know, you're having those days where you feel like just you're ensconced in a big dark storm clouds. So that's incredible to hear. And I'm, I'm so, so happy for you. What What's the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you so far? Probably my resilience, that no matter what is thrown at me. Um, my physio said to me the other day, she's like, you wouldn't be facing what you are facing if you couldn't handle it. I said to her, I was like, you know, some people could take that in a really negative way. And she's like, I wouldn't say that to just anybody. She's like, I know that you can handle what you've been through. And she's like, and I know that you can get through that. Again, another another support person is my physio, who's again, like a therapist. And she said to me, you know, if you couldn't handle it, you wouldn't have gone through it and you wouldn't be here today. She's like, there are many times when you could have opted out and you had the chance and you tried to opt out, but you didn't and you chose to fight. The day last week when I went to the pool, I was having the worst day. I didn't go to work. I was in tears all day. I was feeling absolutely crap about myself. And so instead, yeah, I decided let's put on a pair of togs and make ourselves feel even worse. But once I got into the pool, it was something switched. So yeah, resilience. I've, I wouldn't know how to put it in any other way. 
I think that's a lovely way to put it. Absolutely. Life works in mysterious ways and and we are all given these things to to fight for different reasons. And we learn things about ourselves that we otherwise wouldn't have on those journeys. And I think in some ways I look at, at my eating disorder recovery as, as a bit of a gift because it did teach me to face parts of myself that I otherwise wouldn't have had to. And, and it's also given me my purpose. And I think, you know, for you to be able to learn that resilience and, and to learn about so many other parts of yourself that you otherwise may not have had to come face to face with. So I think it can be a really transformative um, experience. Definitely. In your opinion, what are some of the best ways that people can support someone who's going through binge eating disorder? It's trying to find a way that you can get that person to be honest with them. So for me, I don't let people upstairs into my bedroom because that is the room that I premier. I don't, the only meals I eat in public are, you know, dinner with my son or when I'm at work. Finding ways to get into spaces, I guess, in a really controlled situation and trying to break down those myths that you must eat that food in that area. You know, trying to help normalize it without trying to be their therapist. But if they say that, you know, they're struggling with a certain type of food, then, you know, going and having a food experience with that. I remember when I was learning to eat chocolate before I started binging on it, I went to a chocolate shop and I bought different types of chocolate because I didn't know what I liked because I'd been told I don't like it. So I bought a whole lot of different ones because I didn't know, I had no idea what I liked. And just being prepared to hear anything is the other bit that, you know, there'll be some times that you'll shut people out. My friends are really aware of that when I shut them out and they know, they understand why, but never giving up on that person because, you know, no matter where they are, there is one friend I have who had an eating disorder at the same time as me. We'd known each other through high school. So we're friends for over 20 years and we'd take a year of talking when we were bad because we couldn't be negative in each other's lives. You know, now that we're both in better places, we can have that relationship again. But having the ability to have space but not not be there and you know it means sending the occasional text hey just so that you know I'm thinking of you no matter what no matter where you're at or good day or bad day you know when you're ready I'm here for you. I think that's a testament to a really strong loyal friendship and I'm so pleased that that you have someone like that in your life. I have similar friends in my life and who understood that when I needed to take time out from communicating and they would still be there at the end of it all. Mine may be stuck in Scotland at the moment and she chose to go there and you know I don't get to see her as often as I'd like but the best thing is we have Skype and we have Zoom and we have you know we have all these tools now that I can be with her I can have a cup of coffee with her and have proper conversations it's just we're not physically in the same location but then we can joke about that as well so the support doesn't have to be right beside you or even in the same country it can be via a camera via a group it's not bound by one means Absolutely. There's so many different ways in order to keep up that connection, which is such an important part of recovery. And I think 
that's one thing that COVID really has taught us is that there are so many other ways to keep up that sense of connection and no, it will never be the same as as that physical connection, but it's the best we've got at the moment. So it's about about making the most of, of what we have at our disposal right now. Finally, I just want to ask you, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with today, especially those who are still struggling? This is something I think of often because I am so aware that I'm still on my journey. I'm not where I want to be, but I know that I'm on my way. For me, it's just holding on to hope and knowing that remission is possible. And I say remission because to me, you never, there will always be an aspect of some sort of something in your life. I don't personally think it goes away completely. There'll always be something that could trigger you and holding on to hope. And it's really cliche, but, you know, as long as you're willing to fight it, then you can get through the hard days and setbacks are normal um, and they're part of it. And you can have a one-day setback or you can have a three-month setback but that doesn't stop your recovery. It just means that in that moment, you're going through some stuff. And I've had many periods where I've stopped trying to recover because for whatever reason, whether it be physically, I couldn't, but I chose somehow deep down in me, I chose to fight and keep fighting. And if you're in the position where you can choose to fight, then that is by far the best option. And Seeing that there are people that have recovered is the other thing. And seeing that recovery is possible, that there are positive influences out there that can you can aspire to be. You don't have to be want to be like them, but you can aspire to be recovered like them. And that's the difference. Not trying to be that person, but be recovered in a way that you could live a life in a way that they are able to without thinking about food 24-7 without thinking about what they're having for breakfast and eating what you want when you want. Absolutely. And you have got to keep fighting for that freedom. It's so important. And I love what you said about hope because hope is such a powerful, powerful thing. And sometimes in recovery, we do lose that sense of hope a bit. And I think it's really, really important in those times to look to the people in your life that hold that hope for you and continue to keep shining that light. And you hold on to that and and just keep fighting and knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you can recover anybody who's struggling can recover yeah again comes to the following the right people on social because if you follow people that have recovered then it just it really makes a massive difference to your own knowledge of recovery absolutely well it's about what you surround yourself with isn't it the influences that we surround ourselves with you know, it's so it makes more of a difference, I think, than we realize. And if you're constantly seeing people that are embodying that sense of, of freedom and of living a full life and being unencumbered by food and body and exercise issues, then that makes you fight even harder to get to that space as well. And I, I think it's so important to understand that anybody can get to that space. It doesn't matter how long or hard your eating disorder journey has been, you can get there. Yeah, definitely. 
thank you so, so much for being so open and so honest with me today. I know that this is going to help so many people, not only people who are struggling with eating disorders, but also people who maybe don't have an understanding of eating disorders, parents and carers who are concerned about a loved one. You've been so authentic and the power of vulnerability, you are an absolute testament to that. So thank you so, so much for joining me today, Wendy. I truly, truly appreciate it. No problems at all. There is hope at endad.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media production.